0: Good to be in Miami, Baruch Hashem As we continue our Musar series Yesterday we had uh, a phenomenal Shior in uh, Aventura It was very long, uh, I have to admit it was longer than usual But, uh, thank you for reminding me But uh, a lot of new things, a lot of new chidushim And uh, one of the things that we talked about last night was the whole issue of, uh, not necessarily just Parnassah, but uh, I guess, if you will, the, the issue that we're suffering in our current generation as a generation of either stingy people, people that are very cheap, uh, or people that just decide to buy mitzvot instead of do mitzvot. Meaning that people are liking the card has some type of fame in it, some type of recognition in it. So if you tell them, listen, if you uh, donate, we'll put your name on, your, you know, on a Bet Knesset, they'll do it. If you donate, we'll put your name on a Sefer Torah, they'll do it. If you donate, we're going to announce the K- to the Keilah that you sponsored the Hanukkah party, they'll donate. But if you tell them, listen, if you uh, donate, you may be able to be a partner in saving a Jew from going to eternal Shalom, not as many people are as excited. Now, this is one of the systemic problems that our nation suffers as of now. One reason is because we're not taught what is the meaning of actually helping people do chuba. We're not really taught the significance behind tshuva. We're not taught of how much we actually need Amishel. We need, each one of us, whether we did tshuva or in the process of tshuva or doing tshuva or haven't done anything yet, we need the rest of the nation to do tshuva. Each and every single person that's part of and as a matter of fact, each and every single person that's part of the world, needs to understand that it's for their best interest for Amishat to do tshuva. Because when Amishat does tshuva, when Amishat is close to Hashem, the whole world benefits. If you look at the times of, let's say, for example, Shlomo HaMelech, the whole world was prospering. The nation was righteous. Shlomo was an amazing judge, never had a war, made peace with all of the countries, there was an endless amount of reward that was being gifted to Am Yisrael and all of the nations as a result of it. The same goes throughout all of history. Anytime we've actually had Am Yisrael close to Hashem, the whole world benefited out of it. times that we've had Am Yisrael far from Hashem, Am Yisrael suffered, and sometimes the world at large suffered along with it sometimes at the same time, sometimes shortly after. So if we knew and believed, knew and believed, knowing is after battle. Many people know there's a God. They know there has to be some type of a creator. But believing requires you to change. So not everybody believes. You don't need to be a genius to know that there's a God. Even though knowledge means you obviously have to feel it, but we're talking about in a lesser terms, a different context of the language. Knowing that there has to be some type of creator is just common sense. But believing in the God of Israel requires life changes. And many people spend their entire lives trying to convince themselves and everyone around them that there's no God. Or that God doesn't mean what he actually said. Or that maybe he didn't even say it. I had a nice kaparat avonot in the last two Sundays. I uh, had to go to the dentist. And uh, I went to the dentist. My tooth hurt one of the sins that I've made throughout my life That's what happens, you make sins you have to pay for them so eventually, maybe it's a sin I made a year ago five years ago, twenty years ago, who knows but at some point you have to pay the bill But Hashem, it's here and not there so I had a toothache so I go to the dentist and he tells me oh, you came for root canal, bo Hashem I'm saying you came for root canal I thought it was maybe you know, a little small filling or something. He's telling me, no, you have a root canal. But uh, interesting news is, is that you actually need two root canals. Not one. Two. So if you've been watching my speech, is a little different than the last couple of weeks. is because I've had two root canals. Not, not one. Two. Recovering from one root canal is already enough of a nightmare. Two root canals, I'm must extra kaparatavonot. So anyway, why am I telling you about my teeth? Because I learned a lot being in his dentist's office. He's a very nice guy. And he has, like, it's become common in these years, dentist's office, they have a TV. And Baal Hashem, I don't watch TV for already a long time. But uh, he has this TV, and he puts whatever, puts Nature Channel and uh, PBS and all types of uh, things. And I'm sitting there for three hours, three and a half hours, and he has this Nature Channel of how you know the world is—I uh, think it's—I guess some type of uh, Discovery Channel or National Geographic, so one of these channels that talks about nature, talks about the world, talks about the chemicals, the uh, things that make up the world, the fish, the amoebas, the volcanoes, so on. Nature. So for three hours, I'm hearing this thing. I'm hearing this show in the background. And he's talking about, look at this perfection of nature and how the volcano has to to do all this. And there's certain people that sacrifice their life in order to maintain a low fire at the volcano because it's very dangerous, but there's a lot of uh, chemicals there and it's dangerous and it's poisonous. And there's another guy that's diving into the water that's inside caves, and he was able to document how the water changes... And then there's another guy that's a special fisherman for a special type of, uh, I don't know, some, some type of fish that lights up like, a, like as if they have, you know, literally, it's a little octopus. Like a kind of uh, and he lights up like as if he has a light bulb attached to him. And so on and so forth. All these, you know, amazing things in nature. So that was the first appointment. Second appointment also had the same similar show on. But in the second appointment, I came prepared. the second appointment, after we finished the appointment, <laughs> we finished the appointment, finished the kapalat avonod, or at least the first part, the second part of the kapalat is at home, when the numbing wears off. That's an unusual amount of fun. Uh, so, at the end of the second one, I, uh, I told him here, and I gave him one of my Kiruf packages. He's like, oh wow, thank you, I appreciate it. Uh, what's this? And you know, yeah, he asked me a few things about religion. He asked me a few things about God. We talked a little bit about it before, and I didn't just you know, give it them for no reason. And anyway, I gave him one of the um, books that's in our Q uh, package, and I said, well, you see, the last three hours I've been listening to this scientist trying to convince himself and the audience, that nature came by itself. So this perfection in nature, the light, and the light bulb that the octopus is holding, and the tunnel that has perfectly clear water, but then it changes, and the volcano that needs this, and needs that, and does this, and does that, and all these wonderful things, three and a half hours is explaining to to his audience and himself, that everything just came to be. It's all just chemicals, and really there's just the, you know, uh, all of these chemicals is approximately uh, seven dozen or so chemicals. I think, what is it, the periodic table has, what, 92 uh, different uh, elements. So you have all pretty much whether it's outer space or inner space or somewhere in between, if it's light years away or it's right next door, it's all the same thing. Water is water, carbon is carbon, hydrogen is hydrogen, everything has... It's all the same thing. It all came to be. So for three hours, he's trying to convince himself and the audience that it's all by luck. All just, you know, millions of years. So I said, here's a book that shows that everything that he said is actually already known by our Torah and our sages from 3,300 years ago and explains how there's no possible way that he's right. People think that just because we discovered a few uh, things under a microscope, that, uh, that means that we're enlightened. And people are trying to convince themselves that the God of Israel is either non-existent, or is tired, old, broke, all types of things, and... And last night, Shua, we—I uh, said a story about a guy that called me, and he was very, very upset at me. He left me a message. I, I usually don't pick up the phone, so if you call me and I don't pick up the phone, don't feel upset. It's nothing. Uh, it's nothing um, personal. I generally don't pick up the phone. Um, I'm usually doing something. I'm either on the phone already, or I'm in the middle of studying or something else. I generally don't mean, don't pick up the phone for people that I know. For people that I don't know, I definitely don't pick up the phone, even if I'm not busy. So it's better if you want to reach me, it's better you send me a text, you send me a message, or you leave a voicemail. I always return calls, I always return messages, but generally as far as picking up the phone, um, I don't pick it up. So this guy called a few times, and eventually he left a message. And he was very, very angry with me. He said that... He saw one of my, uh, I guess, video clips. I doubt he saw a whole shiur, but he saw a video clip of how I talk about emunah. And uh, according to our Torah, if you have a high level of emunah, then you could literally get to a point of living with complete confidence that Hashem will take care of everything: your parnasa, your refuah, everything. You can get, not everybody has this obviously, but you can get to that level. Everyone can. And he said that what I said was completely irresponsible. I should be ashamed of myself. Uh, And that what about ishtadlut? What about trying effort? What about helping the Creator, becoming partners with the Creator in creation? What about helping God? So the question is, does God need help? In case someone is not going to watch the entire show to answer the question, if your God needs help, he's not the real God. If your God died 2,000 years ago, he's not the real God. If your God needs advice once in a while, he's not the real God. If your God needs a loan, needs some money, because you know he doesn't have any. He spent it all on Noach. They ruined the whole world. He was depending on the world going. You know, he already made one-time investment in creation. Adam, Eve, he invested all the money. He didn't realize that just a fifteen hundred years later, they're going to ruin the whole things and have to rebuild it. He didn't know, so he had to take a mortgage. And he's been paying it off for the last 4,000 years. If that's your God and you he need a loan, he's not the real God. So in case you don't watch the whole shiur, that's the answer. But the question is, does God need our help? Does what this person say said, who was very angry at me and called me shameful for, for explaining that you should, or at least suggesting that we should strive to have a munah, he was very upset with me. Does he actually have any valid points? Is really the question. The second question we're going to try to answer today is a continuation of last night's Shior, where people have asked me several times, you know, there's some of these sh- things that we mentioned in the Shulim about what happens if somebody sins. There's Gan Eden, there's for, for righteous, there's Gehenom for wicked... This game, no part doesn't sound like much fun. Seems more like my root canals. Just a lot more of it. So, how do we know if God forgave us? Did He send us an email? Send us a text message? Jing, Okay, I forgave you. Everything's good. Go buy your business. Well, how do we know? How do we know if God forgave us? According to the Christians. God didn't forget Am Yisrael, and that's why he gave the Christians the New Testament. And that's what he said in the New Testament, that very few Jews are actually going to survive. According to the New Testament, only 144,000 Jews are going to survive the end of times. But two and a half billion Christians are going to survive somehow. So we're fulfilling 613 mitzvot, some less, some, uh, some all, whatever. With them, that they're feeling no meat whatsoever, they're going to survive. We're going to suffer. How that makes sense to anybody, I don't know, but that's what the book says. That's why we know it's a man-made book because it's complete nonsense. It doesn't even make logical sense, let alone divine sense. The Muslims say the that God gave up on us. We make too many mistakes. This week's parasha, again, God punishes us, again, we complain, but again, God forgives us. Nowhere in the Torah does it say that God is didn't forgive us. As a matter of fact, the Tanah Devei the who gave us some Divret Torah, he said that they, when Yeshua Benun Joshua rebuked the nation. He told them, if you keep sinning, God's eventually not going to forgive you. He's going to punish you. He's going to send you to Ganoam. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. God came to Yeshua Ben-Nu and he said, Why are you telling the nation I'm not going to forgive them? Didn't I forgive them after the golden calf? We just got married. They cheated on me a week later. Didn't I forgive them after they complained about the man? Even though it tasted like anything they wanted, they still said it wasn't good. How could it not be good? It tastes like you want. So only if what you want doesn't taste good, it's your fault, not my fault. You want an ice cream? I give you ice cream. Now you want steak. It's my fault. You want steak now? You want ice cream? I give you ice cream. If you want steak tomorrow, you can have steak. You complain with the man, and then even after that, you complain about the water. And then you complain about Moshe. And then you cl- complain about the land. You complain, you complain, complain. And each time I forgave you. You went and you actually went with the goyim. You sent the men to be with all the goyot. Prostitution, immodesty. The things that I hate. If it wasn't for Pinchas, I would have destroyed all of you. And I still forgave you. So Yeshua Ben-Nun, my son, why are you telling them? Why are you telling them about me? That I'm not going to forgive them. Yugdol Do. Yeshua Ben-Nun says, I said it because I wanted to scare them because that's the only way they're going to start doing tshubah, and start listening to you. And the Yahweh says that God kissed his forehead and his hands. He took the hands of Yeshua ben Nun and he kissed them. Like you kissed Sadiq. He says, you're right. That's the same system I use. When they were at Mount Sinai and they heard my voice, they all died. And they complained to Moshe, 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 go, go, go to the mountain, you talk to him. We'll do whatever he says and then we'll hear what he actually said. We'll do it. And Moshe said, don't be scared. He spoke to them for me. So don't be scared, he's just scaring you because that's the only way that you're not going to sin. The only way you're going to know what to do is when you know if there's a consequence, if there's a price for each decision. If the menu has no prices, then only a fool wouldn't order everything. If someone gives you a menu at a high-end restaurant and there's no prices, everything says free next to it. Only a fool wouldn't order everything on the menu. And as much of it as you possibly can get, it's free, what do you care? Take it home, sell it. It's free. But if the waiter adjusts the menu and says, No, 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 just a shade of light made it look like free, but in reality, it's a three-digit number with a dollar sign next to each one. So each one is no less than a hundred dollars. Now everything has changed. Now you don't want every steak on the menu. You're deciding whether you can even afford one steak. Now you're not really sure if you want an appetizer. You're deciding whether this is even the right restaurant for you to be in. Because you know the cost. You know there's a price for what your decision is going to be. Hashemit Iqbarach told Am Yisrael, I am your God that took you out of Egypt. Not because there was a question in anyone's mind. But it served as a reminder for all generations that the nation of Israel began... At the Exodus. Even though God was there, when he created the world, there was no witnesses. But the Exodus, there were millions and millions of witnesses. So he said, this is the beginning. But he spoke using his voice. We heard it. We couldn't handle it. We died. God brought us back to life. And he said, listen, I know it's scary, but it's good to be scared of me. I'm your God. I'm not your friend. I'm not your brother. I'm not your sister. I'm God. If you're not scared of God, he's not God. If no one's paying attention to the king, he's not the king. When a servant is asked to do something by the king, it's really not a request. It's an order. If he refuses, the king is not allowed to say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. You're a nice guy. Just go. Go home. Go take the day off. Take the day off. You seem hot. You seem bothered. You seem sick. There's this thing. Someone who disobeys the king dies. According to the Torah, a king is not allowed to allow people to dishonor him. Not allowed. Because the kinghood is not really his. Hashem picked him to be king. the question is, how do we know if this king of kings needs our help to be a king? And two, how do we know that this king of kings forgave us? Because according to Chazal, according to our sages, if he didn't forgive us, the punishment is dear. So, in this Mishnah Gimel Ted three sixteen, 3 will try to connect the two. Rabbi Ishmael Omer, Eve Kal Roche, Venoach, Letish Horet. Rabbi Ishmael says, Be yielding to a superior, pleasant to the young, and receive every person cheerfully. Anyone that just pays attention to the sentence would immediately come to the conclusion that without God there's absolutely no way to answer the questions I just asked by what I just said so don't give me any credit at the end of this year if I'm successful, because it's not me, it's Hashem. Now here you have Rabbi Ishmael telling us, yield to superior, be pleasant to the young, and receive every person cheerfully. Seems pretty practical advice. Pretty simple. Seems like common sense doesn't actually seem so genius. Doesn't seem like a tanah. Seems like something any old man would tell you. So who is this Rabbi Ishmael? Rabbi Ishmael was the Chavruta of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, as the Gemara testifies, reached the highest level of Kedusha out of every person that ever lived. Even higher than Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was the highest level prophet that ever lived. He's the prophet of all prophets. Mm -hmm. But, But he reached the 49th level of Kedusha. Chazal explains to us that Rabbi Akiva reached level 50. Why is this so important for us to know? It's important for us to know because Rabbi Akiva was not only illiterate until the age of 40, but he was also not religious, he just started doing tshuva at the age of forty. Which by that, Hashem is explaining to us that it's never too late. If Rabbi Akiva can get from being an illiterate person that hates hates talmidei chachamim, doesn't like them, hates them, he says he used to want to bite them like a donkey bites a person. People say, no, you mean like a dog bites a person. He goes, no, no, like a donkey. Because when a dog bites, he just bites the flesh. When a donkey bites, he crushes the bone. I hated Tamidech HaChamim like a donkey bites. That's how much he hated them Before he did Tshuva. So to go from that to the highest level of Kedusha, here Hashem is writing in black and white. It's all in your hands. It's all in your hands. You want to be Kadosh? You could be Kadosh. You want to be Tame? Very simple. You could be Tameh. You could be pure, you could be impure. You could be righteous, you could be wicked. That is your decision. So Rabbi Ishmael was a Chavuta. Also, Chazal says that Rabbi Ishmael is a machloket, is a debate whether it's the very same Rabbi Ishmael that was the Kohen Gadol, who was also one of the Asaral Ahugeh Malchut, one of the ten martyrs that the uh, Romans, the evil Romers killed during the destructions of the Bet HaMikdash, or he was his grandson. He says the Rabbi Ishmael that was one of the martyrs, or he was the grandson. very interesting stories about Rabbi Ishmael to just understand who we're dealing with here. He was kidnapped by the Romans as a young boy and uh, Rabbi Yeshua put up a fortune to release him from prison because he saw that this boy was going to be Gdoladol. In Gemara Masechet Gaitin, page 58a, it explains how much of a genius he was, how much of a giant. He was in Torah and Kedusha and was already seen at the prediction of the sage coming true at a relatively young age. Now what work did Rabbi Ishmael leave behind? Rabbi Ishmael was the first to codify the 13th hermeneutic principles of the Biblical interpretation. In essence, there's a certain principle, certain laws of how to interpret the Torah, how to read it. This is one of the downfalls of Christianity, Islam, Catholicism, pretty much everything and anything other than Orthodox Judaism. Because there are rules of how to read the Torah. There are rules. You can't read it like you read a newspaper. It's not literal Hebrew. It's not just basics. There's secrets, there's understandings, there's rules. Modern Hebrew is, even though it sounds the same, looks the same, acts the same, in reality it's a very different language. It's a very different language. As a matter of fact, the inventors of modern day Hebrew... Intentionally invented certain words that are the exact opposite of what their biblical meaning is, because there were Zionist haters of Torah, and they did everything they could to confuse the public. So, if you're if you know modern Hebrew, let's say if you live in Israel, it doesn't necessarily mean you know how to read the Torah. If you know the Torah, it doesn't mean that you know how to speak Hebrew. As far as conversational is concerned, so for example, like the Hasidei Satmer, they know how to read the biblical language perfectly well, but they usually refuse to speak to you in Hebrew. Because it's two different things. On the other hand, many Israelis lived in Israel their whole life, even ones that have gone to Beth Knesset their whole life, have gone to Beth Knesset their whole life, you know the. You have the Masoret, how they call it. They have the tradition, the traditional Jews. They still drive on Shabbat. They still don't really study, other than maybe once a week they hear at dresha and a shul. Still eat kosher once in a while, not kosher once in a while. Traditional. Traditional. Biggest holiday of the year is Yom Hatzma'ut, Independence Day of Israel. Not necessarily Yom Kippur or Shana. Very Zionistic. Very big lovers of Israel. I tell them, you know, you, you believe in a Torah? Believe in a Torah. You believe in God? Believe in God. No, no problem. Most people believe in God. Sometimes they believe in God and His Torah. Sometimes they just believe in God. It's usually not a problem. Unfortunately, there are some that are atheists, but that's a decision really more than a belief. It's not wanting to believe in a Creator. not necessarily not believing in a Creator. But nonetheless, you go to most Jews and you tell them you believe in God, yes. You believe in the Torah, many will say yes. Even if you go to people that have changed their religion, like conservatives or reform. Tell them you believe in God, yes. You believe in the Torah, yeah, some parts of it. Some I like, some I don't like. The parts I like, I believe in. The parts I don't like, I don't believe in. So it becomes like a menu. I believe in the steak because I'm eating it. The burger, not so much. I ate the last time, it gave me stomachache. Pick can choose. But still, the basics, who is, there's a God, yes. Torah, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's okay, since you believe in the Torah, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Let me ask you if you believe in the part where it says that Hashem, when He gets really upset with us, He's going to punish us you believe in that? He goes, yeah, yeah, that happens. I know that happened in, in the past to Moses, right? It happened to Moses, at a like, Yeah, yeah, something like that. Like, what about the part where he says that he's also going to punish future generations? You remember that part? He goes, yeah, something. Like, what about when he said there's going to be levels of punishment? No, I don't remember that part so much. What about when he says that the fifth level of punishment is bringing us to such starvation, such starvation, that we're going to, Get to a point of being so desperate that we will eat our children. You remember that part in the Torah? I have yet to meet one person, one, to say yes. Other than people that obviously study Torah and observe it and follow it, I have yet to meet one person. Each time you say, no, no, come on, where, where, what Midrash, what story, who said it? No, no, I said, God said it, twice, literally. And then you show him the verse, and you show him that there's no way that you can misinterpret the verse. There's no way you can misinterpret it. This is what it means, literally. It's not a secret, it doesn't even have to follow the rules that Rabbi Ishmael mentioned here. It's just literal. Why don't we know it? Either because we're talking in shul, and we're too busy in our conversation and our mindset thinking about the stock market and the real estate market and the job and the business and the customer and the kids and the wife and everything else except what God is saying, or we just don't know. We don't know the biblical language because we only study maybe a half an hour a week. I know when I read it, I almost had a heart attack. So, Rabbi Ishmael is telling us here, there are rules to how to read the Torah. If you follow the rules, you will inherit the secrets. You will be blessed. You'll have the instructions the way that the Creator wrote them. If you don't follow the rules, all better off. Abishmel also put together much of the Allahic Midrash in Michilta of uh, Exodus, uh, Sefer Shmot, also in Sifri in uh, Numbers, and part of Sifri in Deuteronomy. In so many words, His work is something we can see. Not just hear about. There's books. Countless works that we can read and learn from. And be'ezat Hashem maybe one day even understand. His genius made him a giant among giants. But yet, he follows the same Pattern of behavior, like we've seen other giants in the Avot series, and these are the biggest giants in world history, let alone Amisaz's history. He keeps it simple, stupid. He keeps the instructions simple enough for a stupid person to understand it. This is not for an insult for anyone, because I'm included in all descriptions. This is because Chazal knew that the generations are deteriorating. But the Torah must be eternal. It must be understood by even someone that's foolish. So even if the foolish person is not gonna get to have the he's not gonna have the ability, at least not initially, to understand the deep meaning of things. Even understanding the basic meaning would do him service and can change his life. And he keeps the instructions of all of his wisdom, all of the learning that he has, simplifying it into three different things saying that you should yield to a superior, you should be cheerful. Or pleasant to to the young people or to the young and you should be cheerful to receive every person. One of the things we learned from at least about his personality is in the Gemara Maseret Barachot page 19a it says that Rabbi Ishmael came up with the, coined the term of Kav saying if You ever see a Torah scholar sin by night? You should not be suspicious of him by that morning. Why? Because you could be certain that if he's a Torah scholar, he repented before he went to sleep. Meaning that if someone is following the rules, even if they err from time to time, you must judge them favorably. Because they're following the rules. But they're still human. They still have a yetzara. And he says, even I made a mistake. One time, I said, you know what, the decree that the sages made to protect us, to put a fence around the fence... I didn't take it to heart. You know, there's a decree that, Amisa, that Hashem put together and He says, don't light fire on Shabbat. Someone that lights fire on Shabbat. Someone that drives on Shabbat. Someone that smokes a cigarette on Shabbat. It's cut off from the nation. It's considered 100% an idol worshiper. It's considered someone that's denying... The Creator's creation in six days and resting on a seventh. As a matter of fact, the couple of places where it mentions whether Hashem is even interested in being a partner with us or not, is in the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, page 119, it talks about how a person it says Kiddush on Shabbat, and he says Vayichulu, and he keeps Shabbat, not Vayichulu and he goes to the club five minutes later. He says Vayichulu, he says the verse from Parashat Bereshit, that Hashem created the world, in six days and rested on the seventh, and he observes the Shabbat like Alacha. that person is testifying That Hashem created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And therefore Hashem considers that person a partner. He considers him a partner because even though Hashem knows what happened, you testifying that that happened, that makes you a partner. You not doing it, that makes you a denier. Like the Iranian leaders, the Nazi leaders, the all haters of Israel of today's age, what do they all deny? They delight, deny the Holocaust. The one thing we actually have pictures of, they deny. No one denies Mount Sinai. No one denies Beth No one denies the pogroms. No one denies the inquisitions. Because it's written in books. Countless books. They all depend on these books. They don't deny it. But the Holocaust, no one depends on the Holocaust. As a matter of fact, to them it's annoying that we keep mentioning, that we keep suffering and suffering every year and reminding the people that we've suffered so much and got killed so much. And despite the fact that there were tens of millions of people that died, the world is constantly reminded of the six million that were Jewish. And the goyim hate it. So some of them go to the extent of denying it. We said, we have pictures. They said, we have pictures also of things that didn't happen. Just because you have pictures, I mean, it's true. And even though it's illogical and insane and politically incorrect, if it's against the Jews, it's allowed. I don't know if any of you heard been a lot of heat in the Jewish world in recent weeks because of the whole thing about homosexuality and the gay parades and so on. But to show you how warped the mindset of this world is and how anti-Semitic the world we live in is, they had a, the biggest and only gay parade in the Middle East, where? In Tel Aviv. Hashem in the Holy Land, we have a gay parade. What Hashem calls to'avat Hashem, He calls it disgusting, we have a parade about it. If that wasn't bad enough, they continue having these parades everywhere else. So they had a gay parade in Chicago. A few of the homosexual men decided... That they want to bring a Jewish flag, a, a, not Jewish, a Israeli flag, but to have the gay rainbow on it as a representation that they are gay Israelis. And the rest of the homosexuals said that they feel threatened by these Israeli homosexuals and they kicked them out. So even the sinners don't accept the sinners. Why? They don't like Jews has nothing to do with being homosexual. But this shows you how warped and demented the mindset is of people. Maybe it will remind those few homosexual Jews that it's time to come home and do tshuva and stop following their desires. Because the world at large is never going to love you. Only God will but not if you're a sinner against them. So now, Rabbi Shema'el is telling us that in the sin of Shabbat, of fire, of course, everyone knows, but the sages implemented a rule. They said that, you know, we have to make a fence around the fence according to what God said. There's a verse in the Torah. Hashem gives us the permission to put a fence around His fence. He says violating my Shabbat, outright lighting fire, smoking a cigarette, driving on Shabbat, doing all of these things, is the worst possible thing you can do. According to Agmarah, our Zohar, our five books of Moses, the entire Tanakh, any book that's ever written about Shabbat in general, violating Shabbat is the number one sin in Judaism. Someone that murdered, murdered, murdered another person, still has to repent, has to suffer, but eventually has Ulama Abba. Has Ulama Ba Someone that desecrates Shabbat intentionally does not have a share of the world to come. Violating Shabbat is worse than murder. It's not logical as far as humans are concerned. But it's very logical as far as God's concerned. The reason why is because the guy at a Shabbat is different than the murderer. The murderer, he's murdering because of his own desire, his own lack of control. It's nothing against God. It's against the person. He's denying that person's right to live. Either because he made him upset, or because he's jealous, or because of this, or because of that. Or he just lost control, or maybe it was even an accident. So it's not really a murder, but everyone thinks it's murder. Needless to say, it's murder. Murder! You have a murder here. Situation, and the punishment is severe. But still, that person has olam But God says that if he drives on Shabbat or he works on Shabbat, he does business on Shabbat, he has no olam Why? Because he's denying me. I told him that if he keeps Shabbat, he becomes my partner. Because he's testifying that I created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Which means that if he doesn't testify, he's doing the opposite. He's denying. He's denying the Holocaust. He's denying the Beit HaMikdash. He's denying the pogroms. He's denying the inquisitions. He's denying Noach. He's denying Moshe Rabbeinu. He's denying Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. He's denying the entire Torah. And most importantly, he's denying Hashem Barach creating the world b'chalab. There's no bigger chutzpah than that. For that, there's no share of the world to come. We have no connection. He doesn't even believe in me. It doesn't believe in God. How could he have a share of the world to come? I don't want to see him. Just like that program that's convincing people to rationalize creation, this person lived that life. Not for three hours, but for 70 years, 80 years, 100 years, denying. Like this one fool that's a multi-billionaire who's a big supporter of Jews going to Israel but is anti-Judaism. Michael Steinhardt is his name and he's a self-noted, proud atheist. But he likes traditional Judaism because he likes people to have a system, not because he believes in God. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. I have met him one time when I was still in the business world. I wasn't sure because the office was very big. But I wasn't sure if there was enough room for me because the pride was so big. I mean, you have a few billion dollars. Usually, it's, I think it's kind of uh, hard not to have pride. You have no God, it's impossible not to have pride. But anyway, a lot of people like him because he donates a lot of money to this organization and he gets a lot of kids to go to Israel for free. But he's a fool. Because all of the work that he's doing is for nothing. Nothing. It's all worthless. Because as soon as he dies, the suffering just begins. There's no Allah just because you helped a bunch of kids go to Israel. Nowhere in the Torah is written. And there's definitely no Allah if you don't believe in the one that created Allah So people spend their whole lives convincing themselves that there's no creator. And the only reason they do that is because if there's a creator, that means they have to listen to him. If there's no creator, that means they can do whatever they want and they can rationalize unreasonable, unethical behavior. one of those programs and I, and I asked the person who put in the whole spontaneous forces it's a good question it's a good question millions of years did it millions of years oh, mother nature mother nature forces. <laughs> so Rabbi Shmai said one time I didn't listen to the sages and as great as he was he said I made a mistake I didn't listen to the sages, they put a fence around the fence, and they said, listen, not only are you not allowed to light a fire, but you're also not allowed to read, in those days, by the light. Because the light in those days was a candle, a lit candle. You're not allowed to read by the light that night. Why? Because, Chas you would adjust the light, and that's a violation of Shabbat. So to keep you away from violating Shabbat directly, you have to stay away from something that's even close to it. Stay away from the fence so you don't make a problem inside the fence. So don't read next to the light. And again, this is only because in those days you were able to adjust the oil and adjust the fire, which is a violation of Shabbat. Today we don't have such a problem because we don't study next to the light switch. We study on our desk. So he said, I I thought that I know enough and have enough Yerat Shemaim that I'm not going to. And as you would have it, he says, I, Ishmael ben Elisha, read by the candlelight and tempered with the wick. So when the Bet Amikdash is rebuilt, I'll bring a robust sin offering. I made the mistake. Not only did I read by the light, not follow what my colleague said, because I had confidence in myself that one time, but I actually ended up making the ultimate sin. And I have to spend the rest of my life to Juba, and even after the Bet HaMikdash is rebuilt, I'm still going to have to bring a Koban. Because one time, you adjusted the light. One time, you adjusted the light. We drive on Shabbat, no problem. You adjusted the light one time, put a little oil, shook it up a little bit, shook the oil just to make sure it tilts more oil to the right place. Indirect. Like a kosher switch causes which says I'm going to have to bring a Korban and Betan Mikdash when there's the resurrection of the dead. When Mashiach comes, I'm going to have to bring a Korban because I adjusted the light. Because the Savior said don't adjust the light and don't even read by the light just in case you adjust the light. He says, I know I made the mistake and I'm going to have to bring a Korban. We don't even think about the light because we're already in our car driving the Mekneset. Because the rabbi didn't say anything. He then. So this is what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with someone that's a giant among giants. But what makes him a giant is that he's able to admit to an error that you wouldn't even think a fool would make. But the reality is he's showing you that we're all susceptible to error. We're all susceptible to error. As big as you are, as great as you are, if you don't listen to the sages, you're bound to fail. As a matter of fact, one of the sages, uh, that uh, several of them have said, anyone who does not study and become an expert in Halachot Shabbat is guaranteed violating it. If you don't know all the alachot of Shabbat, you're violating Shabbat. Live your whole life violating Shabbat. Yes, it's shogeg, it's accidental, but... Needless to say, we already learned in Avot that if a sin is a result of a lack of study, not, not because you didn't get to it, but because you just didn't feel like studying, then it ends up being, instead of an unintentional sin, it ends up being an intentional sin. So here you have a giant amongst giants telling you, listen, let's keep it simple. We don't need to walk work... Uh, ourselves up and talk about mystical things, Kabbalah, secrets, let's keep it simple. Simple way to connect to Am Yisrael, simple way to connect to Hashem Itbarach, simple way to go in a straight path. First and foremost, yield to a superior. This is common sense. He says, you have to obviously, as our previous rabbis have said, find yourself a rabbi, make yourself a rabbi. But even more so, whenever you see or you're around someone that's bigger than you in Torah, don't go out there and try to impress them. Many times you have big rabbis coming to Keilot to give lectures, and so on. And there's always at least one or two heroes that come to them, and start telling them about all the things they know. Oh yeah, I read this, and I know this, and they start throwing verses at the rabbi to give the rabbi an impression. Hey, I know. I know what I'm talking about. So you know that I know also, so I'm watching you, and I know. And really what they're trying to do is just pat themselves on the back. There's actually a story with Rav uh, Tzion Abba Shaul, Zechat Tzadik Levacha. was one of the G'dolei Ado. was the Chavuta of and uh, they grew up together, they were Chavruta, their whole life, even though they disagreed on many things, they were as close as can be. They actually lived one floor on top of each other, their whole, I think most of their lives, or their whole lives. And Rav Tzion Abba Shaul was, I mean, a giant, giant Chacham, giant Tzadik. Giant, he was one of the Gdolado. You don't become Gdolado just uh, because you wrote a book or something. Then Harry Potter would be called dodo or the author of Harry Potter would be. So he was one of the giants, and uh, one time this uh, young Torah student, young Torah scholar, comes to him today he says, Hey, Kvodram, I have a question about this, and you know, in on page this and on page that. And on page this and on page that. And on this one, on page this and on page that. And he starts throwing sources at him. He's throwing, throwing a book of sources at. So Abdiyol Shaul says, Yeah. The sources are not as important as whether it's a right answer or wrong answer. The outcome. And your outcome is wrong. Because you're misusing the sources. Don't throw sources at me. Show me what you learned. Don't show me what you're trying to tell me that you learned. Show me that you have a straight head. Straight path. Yerat mind Connection to Hashem. No pride. No gaava. No stinginess. No anger, no bad midot. Show me you're going a straight path, you're trying to connect to Hashem for the sake of connecting to Hashem. Not because you're trying to impress me that you know a few pages by heart. What's that going to do for you in Allah? we think it's say, oh yeah, yeah that's uh, Reuven over there, yeah, he knows a few pages by heart. You think anyone's going to let you in Allah because you know pages by heart? No, they're going to let you know if you live life a straight path, connecting to Hashem. So here we see. This is one example. The Rambam says that when you see a man of stature, of Torah stature especially, immediately view yourself as a lightweight. Don't try to go impress them. Number one, it's dangerous, according to me, and number two, it's foolish because you're wasting the opportunity and instead of absorbing. The wealth of knowledge that they have, you're trying to impress them instead. If you go meet a big rabbi, unfortunately there's not many left anymore. And you start telling "Listen, listen, I wrote this book, I wrote that book, I wrote this page, I know this, I did this, I did this, you start giving you your to-do list or your execution list. You're wasting your time. You're better off not going. If you're already going to go there, ask him a question. You know what, Rav? It always bothered me. Why does Hashem say this in this pasuk? Or why is this happened? Say something that's of meaning, of value, without showing off. Lower your head a little bit. That's one first little bit of advice. The second thing that Rav says, it says the To be a kalros, to be a a light head means that as soon as you see someone that's a scholar, that's a great person, be swift-footed to do whatever you can to help them. You see a rabbi, you honor, you see a rabbi, you respect, I mean... You listen to his shiurim. You read his books. He helped you do Chuba, He helped you develop emunah. He is teaching you everyday daf yomi. Whatever it is, you connect to this rabbi. Do everything you can to help him. That's where the benefit is. Why? What's the raya? What's the proof? Have a couple of simple ones. Yeshua ben Nun. When well, Moshe Rabbeinu was talking to Hashem and Hashem says, listen, you're not going to make it to Israel. Someone else is going to take over. Moshe Rabbeinu says, okay, can I pick one of my sons? I have two sons. Eliezer and Gershon. Can I pick one of them? It's the Tzadikim. Nothing wrong with them. I almost died because of one of them because I delayed his me milah, but that was my mistake. It wasn't their mistakes. It's the Tzadikim. Hashem says, no the one who's going to take over is Yeshua Ben-Nun. And Chazal says, yeah, but Yeshua Ben-Nun wasn't exactly G'dol He wasn't a genius. He wasn't the biggest prophet. He didn't know all the chidushim. He didn't know all the secrets. What did he know? He knew how to clean the shul. He knew how to clean the shul. When everybody left, after prayer, he would be staying behind cleaning the shul. He knew how to make sure that nobody bothered Moshe Rabbeinu unless it was 100% necessary. And he waited for him at the mountain. He knew how to eliminate himself and his own gava in order to help his master. Not because he was waiting to one day get a position, but because it was the right thing to do. And it's someone that loves... My people, my sages, and my Torah, to that extent, that's a leader. Wisdom, I'll give him. And like that, Hashem made him g'dol Endless knowledge, endless amount of prophecy. And he even split the ocean for him too. Right before we went into Israel, we got to the Jordan River. Hashem split the river for him. Why? Because he eliminated his own Gava. Another one is Elisha. The prophet Elisha was servant of Eliyahu and begged Eliyahu and not to leave. God said, listen, Eliyahu, your tzaddik, You're amazing, you're holy, I love you. But you can't continue living in this world. Because your kedusha is to such an extent that if you continue to live, you'll destroy the world. You can't handle the fact that people are still sinners. So I'm going to turn you into an angel. And a miraculous storm lifted him up. And Eliyahu Navi is one of few people, ten people, that never died. Hashem took him as is. But before this miraculous storm that's written in Tanakh, literally, actually happened, Eliyahu Hanavi knew this is happening. And he said goodbye to Elisha. Elisha said, no, please don't leave me. What am I going to do without you? No, I gotta go. You could be the master now. What are you complaining about? You ever see uh, Vice President, Taylor President? President, don't retire. No, come on. But I need you. Why do I need you? You're going to be president now. If anything, you'll. Hey, listen, President, I don't think you're good enough for this job. I think you're sick. No, I'm not sick. I'm perfectly healthy. No, no, I think you're old. No, no, no. I'm 45 years old. No, I, I think you're stressed out. No, actually, I, pfft, I just talked to my psychiatrist. I'm perfectly good. I think you're this. I think you're... Vice President always wants the president to leave. Why? As soon as he leaves, his salary goes up. Becomes president. You ever see anybody not want to be CEO? No, 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 CEO, don't retire. I don't retire. Please don't retire. You ever see anything like that? People are dying for him to die the whole time he's alive. So they can take his job. Most people in the business world, especially but it also happens unfortunately in the Torah world. It's human nature. Believe that the only way to get ahead in life is if you step on people. You can only be successful if you steal the panasa from someone else. So when they open a store, they open a store right next to the competition. You have 50 states each one of them is bigger than Israel, practically. Well, actually, it really is. But every time someone opens an electronic store, it's next to the next electronic store. Every time someone opens a law firm, it's next to five other law firms. Every time somebody opens a restaurant, it's next to 18 other restaurants. It's always next to each other. And it's not because, hey, listen, if they go to one restaurant, and they go to five other ones, it's not just because of that. Because that would be fine but it still wouldn't explain why one law firm is situated next to 15 other law firms. Why one real estate office is situated next to 10 other real estate offices. They're all competing. When one real estate broker finds out that there's somebody else in a the deal, they curse the day they were born. Oh, half my commission is gone. One time I got a call from a client And he says, listen, I know you are for a long time, I trust you, I invest with you and everything, but there's this guy that keeps calling me, and he tells me that I should leave you and go to him, take all my money I have with you, go to him, and really, he's the one that taught you everything, he taught you everything you know. And uh, he doesn't say nice things about you so much, but especially the fact that he's your teacher. I said, oh, wow, I, I, I didn't really have that many teachers in my life. What's his name? Very excited to find out this guy's name. And I see this is one of my former employees. I said, well, you know what? You don't have to take my word, but you can just look up my license, how long I'm in the business, and you compare it to him. You see, there's about a 10-year difference. How could he teach me 10 years before he's in the business? When he was still collecting marbles for his collection in kindergarten, I was already in the business. How could he teach me? He just got out of diapers, the guy. What could he teach me? But the reality is, I knew that I had to learn something from this. And what I learned is that people feel that there's a need to destroy others in order for them to advance. And this is one of the things that I hated about business more than anything else. I even had some employees like this. And a few times I fired them just because of this gross behavior. Even though Sometimes it makes them very, very productive as far as money is concerned. But it's a despicable character. It's a despicable character trait. You see that there's a competition. You give the guys a motivation. Listen, guys, first guy to do this deal gets 3000 gets $5,000, gets $10,000, gets this, gets that, whatever. And you see, you know, everybody's supposed to climb the mountain. Whoever reaches the top wins. No problem. That's fair competition. What's annoying about the competition? That the guy that won more times than not, he only won because he chopped off everybody else's hands. Not because he's the most skilled. So this is one thing that we need to learn not to do. In the Torah world, unfortunately, this also happens. There's a lot of jealousy about some of the things that happen. If you notice, the people that tend to hate are the ones that are not successful. So the ones that write comments against me, against Rabbi Mizrahi, uh, against any of the majors, are haters. Not because I said they're haters, not even because I care that they even exist, but it's just a fact of life. Like this one imbecile that keeps making movies against us and, and writing against us and is just really has no life. He has nothing to do in his life other than writing things about us all day. Six, seven months already, all day that's what he does. He writes stuff against us. I say red, he says blue. Not because he likes blue, just because it's the opposite of me. Mama has nothing to do with his life. Destroying is Allah Baba. Mama is self destructing for what? I, don't know, I guess he wants to be a rabbi. Now this is—I thought this initially. I thought this is maybe why he wants to be a rabbi. So go be a rabbi. Why? Am I, am I, do I have a monopoly in a rabbinical world or something? But it was always suspicion. So then he contacts two of my students privately, and he says to them both, "Oh, you know that I'm learning to get my smicha now, and I'm going to be a rabbi." And I'm going to teach the right way, and I'm going to do this, and if you want me to forgive you, you have to learn with me an hour a day. Like if if the guy, my student, offended him in some way or another, he says, If you want me to forgive you, you have to learn with me for an hour a day. Now he's either delusional, desperate, Or just, I don't know, plain crazy. I'm not really sure which one it is. But all I know is that this is all based on the same foundation. Where you feel like in order for you to succeed, you have to destroy others. Divide and conquer mentality. This is a horrible mentality. And people that have it usually don't succeed. And whatever success they have is not even half of what they should have. Sounds like he's dead for attention. Me thats what he is. Me is a poor, poor person that, well, not really. Is, uh, is I don't know if there's many people that are in worse condition than he is. And it's all <coughs> self sabotage. Now, in business, in life, in Torah, you have to understand. Since the Creator is not limited. Neither are the opportunities for his creation. There's no limit to how successful you can be in anything. There is a millionaire in every trade. There's a millionaire in garbage, just like there's a millionaire in technology. There's a millionaire in real estate, and there's a guy that's broke from real estate. There's a guy that's a scholar Talmit Chacham because he was born into a great family full of rabbis and there's a scholar Talmit Chacham that has parents that are both atheists. Delimitation is your decision. You don't need to destroy or burn his store for your store to succeed. You need to convince the one and only upstairs to give you success. That's what you have to do. Convince Him. You don't need to convince anyone else. But if you think the situation is limited, that means you also think He's limited. Once you think He's limited, you believe in someone else. Then you have a problem. Then you have a problem that you have to fix even more than you have to fix your business. Once you limit God... It's no longer God. Which is very similar to what we talked about yesterday. In regards to all of these issues, we keep mentioning the problems with Hasidut and Chabad and brest of how some of these so-called rabbis are telling people to drive on Shabbat but still calling themselves orthodox rabbis. What we clarified yesterday is that if your rabbi that has a Chabad house, has a breast lift house, has an anything Orthodox Judaism house, is not rebuking you to do chuba, he's not Chabad. He's just wearing the uniform of Chabad. If he's not telling you you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat, if he's not telling you you're not allowed to marry a goya, you're not allowed to marry a goy, you're not allowed to eat non-kosher, if he's not telling you the truth of what it says in the Torah, he's not Chabad. He's not breast lift. He's not even Jewish, Bechlal. According to Allah, someone in that position that has the opportunity to rebuke in order to help people do Tshuva, and does not, he becomes excluded from the nation. Someone doesn't want to believe me? You look at Allah, you look at Rambam. Rambam says something horrendous about such a person. In chapter 4 of Ilchot Shuvah, first Alacha, he says there are 24 deeds which hold back Shuvah. Meaning, even though Shuvah is always available to someone, in order to really do serious Shuvah, you need al d'ishmaya. You need help from above. You need help from above to repent for your sins. You need help from above to remember your sins. You need help from above to have an opportunity to repent for your sins. You need help from above to understand that you actually even sinned. 24 things that will eliminate that siyat bishmaya. So even though you will always be able to do tshuva, if you do one of these 24 things, no help for you. Door closed. No help. Why do tshuva? Go do it by yourself. God wants no part of it. Why? You just did one of these 24 sins that is considered crossing the line with God. For the commission of severe sins, there are four specific ones that are worse than all. God will not grant the person who commits such deeds to repent because of the gravity of the transgressions. And they are one, one who causes the masses to sin. Included in this category is one who holds back the many from performing a positive commandment. Someone starts doing chuba, you tell them, eh, you don't need to do this. You could stay where you are. Okay, so you started keeping kosher. Don't relax. You don't have to start keeping Shabbat. Don't go crazy on me. Don't become a uh, Haridi Someone holding back people from doing tshuva. Doing a mitzvah. One mitzvah. Two. One who leads his fellow man astray from the path of good to the path of bad. For example, someone who proselytizes or serves as a missionary for Christianity. Someone says to you, listen, I know you're interested about this God thing, you're interested in doing tshuva, you're interested in your Judaism, but why don't you check out the New Testament? Why don't you check it out, see what it says. Simple suggestion. You're not even giving him the book. You suggested it. You just suggested something. There's no one in a worse position than you. Three. One who sees his son becoming associated with evil influences and refrains from rebuking him. You see a son going the wrong direction. No no He'll figure out on his own, he's gonna grow up. I grew up, I had to go through tough time, so he's gonna go through tough time. I'll do chuba, I did chuba, I'll do chuba. But you know what's right and wrong now. Yes, I know. Watch you tell your son? No, let him learn on his own. Let him learn on his own. Let him go out with the Goya and then figure out that maybe he's not really allowed to be with her. Look, a few horrible stories that I heard, people told me that someone that called themselves a rabbi a couple of times, there's a few different people, so apparently this is a epidemic within the fake part of the Jewish world where the so-called rabbis told the young yeshiva kids, listen, with goyot, with non-Jewish women, you can go with them, but you're just not allowed to marry. It's for practice. Despicable. But this is, what, this is what we're dealing with now. This is what we're dealing with. Number one, they're telling the kids something that's outright against the Torah. Number two, they're treating the goyim like they're cattle. There's no one worse than you on earth. Since his son is under his authority, were he to rebuke him, he would have separated himself from these influences. Hence, by refraining to admonish him, it is considered as if he caused him to sin. fact that you didn't tell him the truth, you're at fault. You knew you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat. and you didn't tell anyone, your whole key is driving on Shabbat. They come to Biknisset. At some point over a year, you're going to to talk about Parashat Shavua. Meaning that no less than 12 times during the year, no less than 12 times during the year, you're going to talk about how horrible violating Shabbat is. Purely by talking about the Parashat. Shabbats mentioned many more times than 12. But no less than 12 times is mentioned how horrible it is to violate Shabbat where it's Isuch Karet, meaning the worst punishment in Judaism. No less than 12 opportunities. They come to the 52 weeks a year for 20 years. You can tell them once. One time you didn't tell him, in fact you told the opposite? Is it any wonder why the Gemara says the Geyenom continues to grow and there's no end to how much it's growing because there's more and more attendees? But Gan Eden stays the same, it doesn't grow because only a select few go inside. Included in the sin are also all of those who have the potential to rebuke others, whether an individual or a group, and refrain from doing so, leaving them to their shortcomings. You have the knowledge. You're a rabbi. You're a religious person. You just started doing tshuva. You heard a few lectures in your life. You don't keep anything, but you know the truth. You have desires. You can't overcome your desires. Torah says you're still obligated to rebuke. Most likely no one's going to listen to you. How can you tell somebody to keep Shabbat if you're not keeping Shabbat? How can you tell somebody don't marry a non-Jew if you're not married to a non-Jew? How can you tell somebody keep kosher if you're not keeping kosher? Most likely no one's going to listen to you. But Torah commands you to continue and you have to rebuke. So someone's going to come to me and they're going to say, wait a minute, Chazal says, if they're not going to listen, the Gemara says, don't bother in rebuking them. This only has to do with rabbinical mitzvot. If it's a rabbinical mitzvah, like Netilat Yadayim, important, but not biblical, you know if you tell your son wash your hands because you're about to eat he's going to lose his mind. He doesn't want to wash his hands. He barely wants to even be in his house. He doesn't want to do anything. So Why are you going to ruin the whole Shabbat dinner? You have 15 people over the house. You know that if you tell your son to wash the hands he's going to lose his mind ruin the whole night. Don't say anything. It's a rabbinical mitzvah. Don't say anything. Dad, you're right. But if you see him going to his car to go drive on Shabbat, it doesn't matter if he's going to flip out or not. You must rebuke him. You must tell him he's not allowed to drive on Shabbat. To the extent that we learned yesterday that you could even embarrass him in public if you have to. Not start with embarrassing him in public. Start with private, nice, mature, civilized. If he continues to not listen, continues to ignore, continues to desecrate the name of Hashem, desecrate a Shabbat, desecrate a biblical mitzvah, you're even allowed to embarrass him in public. Which, if he was a righteous person, embarrassing him in public, you're putting your entire Allah on on the line. So this is what it means to rebuke, and to not to rebuke. Not to rebuke if it's a biblical mitzvah, and you know he's not going to listen. But if it's a biblical one, whether he listens or not is irrelevant. You have to re- you have to do it. Even if you yourself don't do it, even if you yourself are secular, one hundred percent secular, but you know the Torah is true, you know you have to keep Shabbat, you have to you have to rebuke. So when someone even more so, someone that's in a position of knowledge, position of authority, Knows what Shabbat means to Hashem. Knows what all of these Alakot mean to Hashem. Does not rebuke. The Rambam says here this person is in the worst possible position he can be in. What is that position? Hashem will not let him have any help whatsoever in his chuba. So even if he wants to do chuba, no help for him. So now the question is how do we know if Hashem accepted our chuba? Let's say someone messed up, like all of us did at some point. Or at least I did. You didn't do tshuva. You started doing chuba, then you stopped. Finally you woke up. You started doing chuba. How do I know when I'm finished? I'm finished. Anyone have any suggestions? Fidel, usually you have some. How do I know if I finish my tshuva? There is a time that you actually know for sure if you finish your tshuva. Something happens. Okay, the answer is, you know when you get to Shabbat. You know on Judgment Day in Shabbat, And you have your trial, 12-month trial. They show you a movie of your entire life. They show you your sins, they show you your mitzvot. They show you your tshuva, they show you your kavana. They show you what you said, they show you what you did in comparison to what you said. There's no text message that you get from Hashem Barach so long as you're still alive. Why? Don't trust yourself until the day you die. Because even if you were born with the beard, the kippah, the shrine mold, the everything, you're born with a gemara. You're born being one of the few people throughout history that remembers everything the malach taught him. You're still a human being. You're still going to live an X amount of years with a yetzara that's going to do everything he possibly can to convince you to go against the shem. And you're surrounded by people that will try to do the same as well. So to say that you're just too righteous to sin is impossible. That means you're not human. So, as far as knowing when your tshuva is finished, the only way you're going to know when your tshuva is finished is when you get upstairs. Now, why does Hashem do it that way? He does it that way simply because we have a lesson we learned. Obviously, Hashem is all-knowing and already knew this, but we have a lesson that we learned from as far as Hashem's reasoning for not giving us as many years as He did to Noah and the generations before Him. If you remember, Adam Rishon lived to the age of 930 years old. Many of the people right before Noah lived to be several hundred years old. 600, 700, 800, 900 years old. Many of them lived to very, very old age. And Hashem decided when Noah was born that he's going to be the last of it. After him, everyone else is going to have 120 years as a maximum, even though there were certain people that were given even extra years above that. But overall, there were exceptions to the case. There were exceptions. But overall, rule of thumb... After that, everything deteriorated, eventually being maxed out at 120, with a few exceptions to the case. And the reason why is because people saw that each person is living 600, 700, 800 years. They're always going to live. They barely saw, there was barely any funerals other than murder. There's barely any funerals. So everyone said, listen, I'll sin now for the first 700 years of my life. And I'll make tshuva for a hundred years straight, from seven hundred years to eight hundred years, hundred years tshuva. That's what Adam Rishon did. Adam Rishon sinned by eating from the the uh, the forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit. He went out there. He left his wife. Did tshuva for a hundred years. Hundred years tshuva. We're already doing tshuva. A couple of years, we think we're already Mashiach. He did tshuva a hundred years. Hundred years tshuva. It's good. So everyone else said the same thing. Listen, we're going to sin 700 years. From 700 to 800, I'll we'll do tshuva. And if I live to 900, I'll do tshuva for 200 years. Whatever you want to give me, Hashem. But 700 years? So what happens if we know when the Mashiach is going to come, we're going to do tshuva a little bit before he comes. That's why when Yaakov Abinu told his sons, come, I want to tell you about the end of days. I want to tell you what's going to happen when the Mashiach comes. He told us, it's written in the Torah. Okay, before he died, he came to sons. Come, I want to tell you what's going to happen at the end of days. And it says, the next sentence, he said something else completely. Why? Hashem took that prophecy away from him. Don't tell them what's going to happen at the end of days. Because if you tell them when the end of days are, they're all going to wait till the end of days to do If you tell them they're going to live 700 years, they're all going to wait 600 years to do chuba. When David Amelach asked Hashem, Hashem, when am I going to die? Well, I can't tell you that. Can you at least tell me a day you're going to die on Shabbat? Oh, can you at least, maybe take me on Friday? He goes, no, 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 no. Taking, removing one day from your life removes one day of Torah from the world. And one day of Torah that you learn is worth more to me than a thousand sacrifices that your son Shlomo is going to make. So definitely not removing a day from your life. He says, okay, no problem, Hashem. Give me one extra day. Let me die on Sunday. Why die on Shabbat? Why? People are going to make Shabbat for me? No, come on. Let me die on Sunday. He says, no. No king goes into the kinghood of another. Your kinghood ends on Shabbat. Your sons has to start on a Sunday. Starts Has to start Yom Gishon. These are rules of my world. The way I run my world. So here we see that even David HaMelech was not allowed to know when he's going to die. Because if we know when we're going to die, we're going to fail miserably to our Yetzirah. We're putting an obstacle in front of us that we can't handle. And Hashem promised us He's not going to give us an obstacle that we can't handle. So as far as knowing if Hashem accepted our tshuva or not, there's no way in the world that we can know. Number one, because if we knew when we completed our past tshuva, we'd stop. Second of all, there's no such thing as a righteous person who doesn't sin. Meaning that even though you may have done tshuva for your previous sins of Chilul Shabbat, your previous sins of being with an non your previous sin of wasting seed, your previous sin of not studying, your previous sin of this, your previous sin of that. Okay, you did tshuva, let's say, for all of that. There's still other things you're doing. There's still other sins that you're committing. There's no such thing as a person who doesn't sin. Once you've stopped sinning, you no longer belong in this world. This is not to advocate sinning. But it happens. We fail. We have a Yetzirah. As a matter of fact, the sages teach us that a righteous person falls seven times. Why is, Why does he have to fall seven times? Why fall three times? Why does he have to fall b'chalab? This is to teach us not about the fall that we're concentrating on, is that what makes him righteous is that he got up seven times. That's what makes him righteous. If he wasn't, we would just say used to be a righteous person, but he fell. The end. Here it says a righteous person falls seven times, meaning he's still righteous after he fell seven times. He took advantage of the situation and became even more righteous for it. Sometimes a person needs to fail in order to succeed. Last but not least, this first part, we're still within the first two words of this Mishnah, believe it or not. It says here, Yield to the superior. Rashi interprets this as a very simple understanding of knowing where you stand before your Maker. He's the superior. You are the creation. He's the creator. You're the creation. Know and remember where you stand. As long as you remember where you stand, you have a chance to get to a good place. As soon as you think that you run the show, you have a problem. Someone who knows where he stands always yields... To the will of hashem it barach even if it means that he does things he doesn't want to he wants to go to the baseball game but instead he goes to the Shiotoa. torah he wants to go to the club but instead he goes to the synagogue he wants to go to the new non-kosher restaurant but instead he cooks a nice kosher meal for his family He wants to do a lot of things because his Yetzirah is convincing him do this, do this, do this, do this all day. In his head, all day he's telling him do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And all day he has to say no, no, no. This no, this no, no, no. All day being righteous, all day say no, no. This no, 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 no. See, raise little kids, raise little baby daughter. All day no, 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 no. I don't like saying no. But all this, we have to do it so you to get them into the right direction. So we have to do all day. No, not this. No, 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 no. Stop this. Stop. Eventually, it says, okay, you keep saying no. right? Now. You're depressing me already. Right? Okay, I'm going to come back later. <laughs> <laughs> and also, the le Rosh le means the... Um, uh, superior or the head, actually, uh, Rabenu Moshe shakal says, "Is Stands for to do the will of your Father in Heaven. So here we learn that, in essence, just the beginning of this Mishnah, yielding to the superior means you're yielding to the Creator. It's the foundation of everything. Two words: foundation of everything. Once you understand. You're the creation. He's the creator. He's in charge of everything. He's in control of everything. He's responsible for everything. You are just a vessel. If you truly understand the meaning of that, life changes. As long as you don't understand it, you will suffer every minute you live on in this world. A person who does not understand that Hashem is in charge will work overtime. Because he thinks that he needs to help Hashem come up with money. A person who doesn't understand that Hashem runs the show will be cheap. Will be very cheap. Because he thinks that he's limited with how much he has. And that when Hashem said that if you give ma'asir, if you give a tithe, you have 10% of your income. He promises to make you rich. You thought he was just kidding. Just to get you excited, to give some tzedakah. He was only joking. You thought that when the Gemara, Masachet page 17, says that anytime someone pays money for a mitzvah, whether it be Shabbat, holidays, Torah, mitzvot, Hashem pays for it in full. How? He says, I decided already in Rosh how much money you're going to make this year. You're going to make 50000 a 100000 $200,000, 200000000 whatever. I decided in Rosh how much you're going to make. But that does not include the tzachka money you're going to give, the money you're going to spend on Shabbat, the money you're going to spend on holidays. Whatever you spend on those, I'm going to give you. So that means that someone who understands this completely and lives it is never going to look at the price tag of the shopping cart when he goes to the supermarket to shop for the holidays. He's never going to think, should I buy this challah for $4 or this challah for $5? Just for Shabbat. He's never going to think, you know, should I take send my kids to school for this place that's a thousand dollars but much better school? Or the other school that's like 350, but it's okay, it's not so bad. He's not going to think about that. Why? Because Hashem's problem. When you understand that you yield before the Creator, you will never be in a position to even think that you're allowed to be cheap. Because immediately, if you yield before the Creator, you want to be loved by the Creator. And if you want to be loved by the Creator, you don't want to do something that's detested by Him. In the Gemara Masechet Pesachim, Hashem says, I hate four types of people. Four types of people, I hate them. There's a few others that mention other places that he hates them, but there's four types of specific people that he mentions in Masechet Pesachim that he hates them. One of them is an old man that goes after young women. To him, I hate him. He's disgusting to me. You ever see those seven-year-old rich people want to go out with a woman that's not even old enough to be their granddaughter even their granddaughter she's already she's too young for those people he says I hate them hate them they're disgusting human beings another type of person that he hates is someone that's cheap why does he hate someone that's cheap we talked about last night he says because it's the epitome of the opposite of me I only give and receive nothing. You only take and give nothing. And even what you're going to give is not yours. So what are you cheap? You're cheap with my stuff? It's like the king tells you, listen, here's a safe. You are the supervisor of the safe. Okay. I'm going to pay you to be a supervisor of the safe, my safe. No problem. How much is in a safe? Safe has unlimited amount of money. Okay, great. Only one condition. Yes. Whenever my son comes, give him give him a little bit. Give him a little money. Help him out. How much do I give him? Whatever he needs to get. Whenever my son comes, give him some money. Okay. Anything else? Nothing else. You have no other responsibility. You do this one job, you have all that about it. Use one job. I love you. One job. You don't have any other responsibility. One day to do. Six years have passed. No one has come. After six years, Mr. Prince comes. Mr. Prince is wearing a ripped suit. Hasn't bought a suit in a long time. His shoes are ripped. He's carrying his little gemara. He's serious about his studying. He says, listen, I finally ran out of money for my father, the king, gave me six years ago. I finally ran out of money and I have two choices. I could go learn or I could go work. Now, if I go work, that means I can't learn. At least not learn as much. If I go and learn, that means I need to get money from somewhere. I need to live. I still have a few kids. I have a wife. I have to live. So my father told me that whenever I need something, to come here. And what do you say to him? No, you know what? I'm actually a little stressed out right now. I'm working on a deal. Come back after the Fed makes the decision. After the Fed makes a decision on interest rates, I want to see where the market's going, and then, I'll, then you come back, I'll let you know. Because I'm stressed out about the Fed rates. I'm stressed out about the economy. I'm stressed out about the business. I'm stressed about the state of the kingdom. I'm not sure if we're going to have enough money to pay next year's bills. And you send them away. Or better yet, you say, you know what? Listen, I know your father is important and everything, but I'm in charge here. I'm in charge, so I'm going to give you just enough money to get for this week. Come back next week. So you give the guy, like a little boy, you know, little kids, that are generous, they're 15, 16 years old, if they get motivated, a little kid that gets motivated, let's say he has a newspaper out, and he makes a little bit of money, makes $100, $200 a week. He's motivated. If he's motivated, he sees a homeless guy, he sees a uh, someone that's in need, the little boy, or little girl, has no problem giving whatever it is in his pocket. Whether it be $20 or $200, he has no problem at all giving all of it. No problem. Why he's pure. He hasn't been tarnished like the rest of us. He's still little. He's 12 years old. 13 years old. He's still okay. He has no problem giving the homeless guy whatever he has in his pocket. No problem. So, the problem is when the adult gives like the little boy. When the adult says, you know what, yeah, I got $560 in my pocket. Let me give you the Seventy-five cents. Yeah, that's the coins I have. You give the guy seventy-five cents. Say hey, good luck. Thanks for coming. Thanks for giving me the mitzvah. Thanks for giving me the mitzvah. You give the guy seventy-five cents. You feel good about yourself. You give the guy three dollars. Talmit Chacham came to you for help. You give him three dollars. You give him twenty dollars. You feel good about it. I did a mitzvah. Honey, honey, I'm a tzaddik. What happened, honey? I did a mitzvah. I give a Talmit Chacham the lunch. Gemara. for morning to night. You give him twenty dollars. How much did you make today, honey? Oh, I made six hundred dollars. you made six hundred dollars today you gave the guy twenty dollars. You made five thousand dollars this month and you gave, they gave the guy twenty dollars twenty dollars. little boy gives twenty dollars. The little boy gives twenty he gives more than twenty dollars. you give him twenty dollars. That's what happened. Little children give that. Mainly, if it's some homeless guy that has no Kedusha, no yirat shamayim, no connection to Hashem, you just want to give him a meal, and he's a homeless guy, fine, you give him five bucks, ten bucks, whatever. Tamit Chacham, someone that lives Torah his whole life, he's the reason Hashem created the world. He's the reason. He didn't create it for the homeless guy, he didn't create it for the tiger, he didn't create it for the lion... He didn't create it for the politicians. He definitely didn't create it for the homosexuals. He didn't create it for them. Who did he create it for? Created it for the tzaddik. Tzaddik, let us talk all day, you give him $20. What do you think is going to happen when Abba shows up at the safe and he says, did my son come? Yeah, yeah, your son come. Oh, so did you give him the $5,000 I promised him? No, 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 I gave him the $20. I gave him $20. What do you think the king is going to say to you? I gave you one job. I told you I'm going to give you $150,000 a year. I'm going to give you 50000 a year. I'm going to give you a million dollars a year. I'm going to give you whatever I'm going to give you. You have one job. When my son comes, give him what he needs. Are you surprised that Hashem says I hate you? Is a story from Rabbi Isaac Nebirdichov, someone that's at such a high level of Kedushah, it's hard to understand even the story. But it gives us a little perspective of how difficult it is to overcome the bad character trait of stinginess, but at the same token, how someone that has the truth in their hand has to work hard to help people overcome it. So Rabbi Yitzhakim Bir Tichov one day was told that the yeshiva is in danger, the talmidim are in danger, we need money, we need money fast, we need to come up with $30,000. You know, the beautiful things about yeshivot, if there's serious yeshivot, they spend most of their time learning Torah. Not collecting money, but that also means when they're collecting money, they need it. Now, when you have a Torah organization of any kind collecting, it's usually not every single day. It's usually once a year, twice a year, but they need a bunch ASAP because they've gone to work until pretty much the wheels have fallen off. So Rabbi Yitzchak was told, we need $30,000, an enormous amount of money at the time. We need the Rav to go. If we're going to get this money quickly enough, we need the top. We need you to go. Rabbi Yitzchak, always excited for a mitzvah opportunity, (coughs) always excited to help Torah. He goes out with several of his students. He says, okay, tell me where to go. You have a list from last year of who donated, and... Well, go. And they start going through the list. He goes, Oh, no, no, that guy don't go this year. One of them said it. He said, Wait, wait, who we're not going to? He goes, Oh, no, there's this one guy. He's very, very rich, but he never gives. And every year we go to him, and not only does he not give, he makes fun of us. He Perfect. Him, I want to go there first. No, no, no for the rab, he's not going to give. Exactly. For him, I want to go. First. What do they gonna say? They go. They go to this rich guy's house. Rabbi Tzach, Reb Eltichov knocks on the door. The butler opens. He says, "Yes, I can help you." Oh, I'm here to see so and so. He says, "Well, you're here to collect money." You know, he doesn't give. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm here to collect money. Because don't waste your time I know you seem like a reputable rabbi I don't know no, I need to see him okay act at your own it's at your own risk he calls the balabite the owner the owner comes and' says, oh you hate to collect yeah yeah you have a cause oh great 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 thanks for coming yeah, thank you thank you." he goes into his pocket he takes out one penny one penny. A penny was never worth much. Even many years ago. Today, I don't even think it should be in circulation anymore. No one actually uses pennies anymore. I think it costs more money to print a penny and even a five-cent uh, coin than the five-cent coin is worth. But they still print them. Because people are scared of change. But here, be Sakrim Berdichov. He gets the penny, he takes the penny, and he starts dancing and cheering and giving the cheap, stingy, rich man blessings from here till tomorrow. Oh, baruch, Et Avraham, Yaakov, and he gives him the name, and he gives him the blessing, and the guy is like, what's going on, crazy. He goes, oh wow, you like the penny, huh? He yeah, thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it. What a great start. Bauch Hashem. Wow. The guy's like, you want another one? The guy is so enthused about the dancing. That he says, you want another penny? Because you would do that? The guy says, yeah, sure. Why not? Goes into the drawer, Takes out another penny. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. What dancing Rabbi Yitzhak is doing? Bigger than the first time. He's giving him a blessing for me in the next week. The guy is so excited, he says, what about if I gave you a quarter?
1: <laughs>
0: quarter! He falls, he starts dancing. Whoa, 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 He starts dancing. The guy is so excited, he gives him a quarter. He says, okay. This is great. I actually even have. I like you. I like you, Kvodav. I like you. I even have a dollar for you. Ooh, the guy is dancing, Rabbi Yitzhak is dancing like he just gave him the whole sum. And that's exactly what happens next. He says, How much did you say you need? Well, we need $30,000. He goes, one second. The butler comes, brings a checkbook, he writes in the checkbook, and the whole sum. The students are baffled. The whole city knows this man is the stingiest man that ever lived in the city. Kvod how did you break him? How did you break the stingiest man that ever lived in the city? There are legends that speak about this man's stinginess. Rabbi Yitzchak gives us a secret. He says when someone has the Yitzchak stinginess, it has to be somewhere. And I found it. His was in the first penny. His was physically in the penny. Once I took the penny from him, the was gone. Now go enjoy. He's going to give you to no end. And that's exactly what happened. He became the most generous person in the city overcoming your Yetzirah is not easy. It's not easy. It's hard. We said last night, the Rambam says yetzarah for money. You like money so much. You chase money all your life. Anytime something rela- related to Torah comes to you, you're always short. Car, you always have the money. House, you always have enough money. Vacation, definitely. If somebody tells me, yeah, it was so short, you know, I'm not going to be able to uh, give anything this month. It's not like they give that much. In the first place, they give 100 bucks or something like that a month. We're not going to be able to give this much. Okay, no problem. God bless you. So what can I do? God bless you. Shortly later, if I know you're going on vacation to Israel, where do you think we should go? Where do you think we should go in Israel. Last time check checked, each ticket to Israel is almost $1,000. If there's five of you, that's $5,000. Now once you get there, you have to actually get out of the plane. That means you have to pay for a hotel or a house. And if it's for a week or two weeks or three weeks, that also cost costs money. Yes, we love each other, but we don't give each other free homes. And then once you're in the house, you also have to eat. That also costs money. And after you eat, you have to go do something for entertainment. Meaning that if you're going to Israel, it's going to cost a few bucks. And you're telling me you can't afford a hundred bucks for Kiru? You can't afford a hundred bucks for Talmud Chacham? You can't afford a hundred bucks to support Torah? you surprised why Hashem says, I hate you? When we understand this and take it into account, we understand why Hashem is very, very critical of stinginess simply because he says I only gave it to you so you give it to my son not because I need you to have some big house or nice car or a big watch for $20,000 it's not for that enjoy, have a nice watch, have a nice house have a nice dress, have a nice bag, have a nice whatever but when my son comes just do your job that's the point When we yield to the Creator, we've already beat half of our Yitzhak. The other half, the other half is taking action. Rambam says, you have a problem with stinginess, give a little bit to a lot of people. Instead of giving $100 to one person, give $1 to 100 people. Get your neshama used to giving. You start getting pleasure out of giving. Before you know it, you're going to start giving $10 to 100 people. And next thing you know, you're going to give $50 and $100. And you actually get to a point of finally giving what you're supposed to give. But you must work on that trait. You must work on the trait of not being stingy. And obviously I'm talking to myself and everyone, not you guys. This is what it says. One time, there was a story that became famous in Israel about a fool called Zalman, or Zalmale. Zalmale. 20 years he was directing traffic, where? At the entrance of Jerusalem. In the entrance of Jerusalem, many cars pass. 20 years he's there. Directing traffic, go right, go left, go this, go that. He wasn't exactly the brightest there was. His wife, same. She also wasn't this bright. But 20 years, he's directing traffic. Go right, go left, stop, go, yes. One day, he calls his friend early in the morning and he says, Listen, I can't do it today. I can't do it today, 20 years I'm going to work, I can't do it today, I'm sick. I'm sick, I got a cold, I can't get out of bed. You have to go for me, or else there's going to be accidents. There's no one to replace me. 20 years I've been going, they don't even have a replacement for me. His friend says, okay, okay, fine, fine, where do I go? He goes, go to the entrance of Jerusalem. Direct traffic over there. His friend was a little brighter than him. But he wasn't exactly one of these people that travel. Some people live in in Jerusalem and they never leave. They just live there. They enjoy. That's it. So he goes to the entrance of Jerusalem and he sees there's traffic lights. Traffic stops. Traffic goes. Traffic stops. Traffic goes. Everything is managed perfectly fine with traffic lights. So he looks for a place where there's no traffic lights. He can't find it. So he goes to the next payphone, calls the city, goes, Listen, listen, it's getting late. Zalman told me that I have to be here at this time. Where is there no traffic light? And he starts hearing people laughing on the phone as if he said the funniest joke the there ever was. And he says, Why? What's wrong with you? Why are you laughing? He goes, Oh, that Zalman yeah, he's there for twenty years. He goes, Yeah, he works here. He goes, No, he doesn't work here. He just decided to direct the traffic. He goes, okay, so where does he direct it? He says he doesn't really direct it. He pretends like he's directing it, but there's traffic lights. For 30 years already, there's traffic lights. But he makes believe, like as if he's, the whole traffic is depending on him. 20 years he's working for nothing. 20 years this fool is working for nothing. He doesn't even get a penny from the government or any employer nor is he even helping anyone There's traffic lights The Bala Musa says this is us This is some of us who are gonna work 60 70 80 years in this world collecting money Collecting 401k accounts, collecting IRA accounts, collecting savings accounts, collecting houses, collecting cars, collecting watches, collecting jewelry, collecting, collecting, collecting. We go up to Shamayim and tell us, you're like Zalman. You worked for nothing, you lived for 70 years, you have no mitzvot. Why? Because everything I gave you, you left it in the safe. Everything I gave you, it's in a 401k account that half half of it the government's going to take anyway. Instead of using what I gave you to collect mitzvot, you left it in a box for a rainy day that never happened. We're not smarter than Zalman. So the following thing is the Noah let his Noach let literally means be pleasant to the young. Aside from honoring Hashem Barach, this also has to do with some of the things we talked about of being pleasant to the young, pleasant to his children here. especially the ones that are involved with his Torah. On a practical perspective, there are many times that you are put in a position where you've been doing the same thing for a while. You have experience. Whether you're a public speaker or rabbi or you have a certain job you have experience, you're in it for 5 years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever, you're in it for a while. A new guy or girl comes on, and they're excited. They're excited like you used to be 10 years ago. You know, after 10 years, you're not as excited. You like your job, but you're not as excited as the 20-year-old just came out of college. He's excited to be alive. What do I do now? Why? You follow the papers. Oh, follow the, the papers. Okay, great, I'm going to follow the papers. After you finish the papers, what do I do now? What do I do now? Now you can take a break. Oh, Break? No, can, can I do something else? I don't need a break. I'm really hungry. I, I can do something else. And they're excited. Who are the best employees I ever had? Interns. Free interns. The greatest employees that ever existed are free. Why? Because their driving force, pure excitement. The ones I paid, already lowered their excitement. Why? Why is the guy working for free have all the excitement in the world. He has an overdose of excitement. But the one that you actually pay, he's already miserable. Why? The one that you pay, he's already thinking about, so there's money in this. He's probably making more money than me. He has more money than me. I should really, at this point, I'm already working for a week. I can run this place. He's already thinking about your job. He's already miserable and not happy, not content with what he has. You give him 100, he wants 200. You give him 200, he wants 400. You give him 400, he wants 800. This is actually in the admirah, is the reason why a person that has a lot of material and his life revolves around material feels like the more he has, the more he lacks. The guy that has $500 to his name, If you give him a $500 bonus to him, it's a miracle. Right now, he has $500 in his bank. He knows the rent's coming up. It's due any day. And he's short $500. You decide you're Mr. Manager, you're Mr. Owner, you're Mr. Whatever, your customer. Hey, I like you. It's a $500 bonus. He, at that moment, feels like God spoke to him. It's a miracle. $500 $500 has changed his life. $500. Changed his life. Why? That's all he had. You just doubled everything he has. You just gave it to him at the perfect time. You just performed You are Moshe Rabbeinu. You split the seat for him. You give him $500. Now, on the other hand, if he just made 150000 this month to add to his collection of money, and he said, Hey, listen, I like you. It's a $500 tip. What is he going to say? Thanks. Put it in his pocket. Forget about 30 seconds later. The end. Beginning, the end. Conversation. Same $500. But the guy that has the $150,000 feels like he's missing at least another $150,000. As much as you have... Is as much as you feel like you're lacking. I can tell you this from experience. The more we had, the more we felt like we needed. For what? No reason. Because I wasn't a materialistic person to begin with. It's not like I bought watches and bracelets and planes and cars. All the money either went to giving to people or investing into the business. That's it. Beginning, middle, end. I invested in the business. I gave money to people. I helped them out. And uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, obviously, I went away a few times at a decent house. But overall, relative to what we were making, we weren't addicted to toys. The only jewelry I ever had was gifted to me. I never bought a piece of jewelry in my life. At least not for myself. Only owned one car, which was a normal car. Not an expensive house, but That was really only because it was convenient because it was a five-minute walk from my my office. But in general, if I made a million one year, I said next year minimum two million. The year I made five million in uh, 2006, I said next year minimum ten million. Why? If it's already this, it has to be more. It was never in my mind that this has to stay this way. As long as I keep making, you know what, I'm going to coast here. I'm going to make 100 this year, I'm I'll make 100 last next year. I'm going to stay around here. I'm going to relax for a little bit. Never. It's never. The more successful you are, the more you desire, the more you want. And it's not necessarily always because you want more material, it's just for the sake of competition. It's for the sake of continuing to grow. If you're not growing, you feel like you're not doing anything. I wish we all treated Judaism and connection to Hashem the same. I wish we were as ambitious about our connection to Hashem as we are about our connection to money. That we have to force ourselves to continue growing in that regard as well. I wish. And that's what we actually have to do. One of the ways that we can help ourselves is by surrounding ourselves by, with young people. If you're surrounded by people that are just like you, People that are old, mature, experienced, and tired. You will remain old, experienced, and tired. You can't really. All you have to. That's gonna. All that's gonna drive you is some distant memory of your past and a little bit of ambition that you may have left. But if you surround yourself with a few interns. If you surround yourself with a few young students, if you surround yourself with a few tzaddikim that are still striving to get to the ultimate level of yirat Shemaim, surround yourself with a few young people, they're going to move you. They're going to encourage you. And if it's not for you wanting more, it's just because you like to see them excited. So when that young person comes, push them. Don't be one of these people where the young person comes to you and says, listen, can I use some of your lecture material? No. You know how many years I've been working for this material? Go get your own. You know, some people are like this. You go to them and say, listen, you know, you have, uh, you'd have you meet a lecture about XYZ a few times in your career. Can I actually borrow some of the material so I can use it in my lecture? Hey, hey, hey. I've been working 20 years for that material. You think I'm just going to give it to you? Yeah. It's no skin off your back, it'll cost you anything to give it to me. It's my experience. So what are you doing it for? Are you doing it for helping Ahmed come back to Hashem? Or are you doing it for your experience? If you're doing if you're in business, you have experience, you have contacts, as long as you don't get hurt from it. Obviously, if a guy says, listen, can you give me your client list? I'm going to call all your clients and take your business and your house and your car. Obviously, you don't do it. You're not a fool. But I'm talking about if the guy says, listen, if you have a sales pitch, if you have a uh, recommendation, you have some advice, you have some, uh, uh, you know, different contacts that can help me out. I'm a young guy coming in. You're already in it for 20 years. You should be the first one to do it. Why? Why not? Why not? Why not help the young guy? Why not help the next generation? This type of mentality will help you. Number one, it will help you relive your younger age. Relive your early stage tshuva. Once you're in tshuva at 10, 20 years, things get a little stale unless you're surrounded by young people. And I don't mean young by age. I mean young by experience. You could be about tshuva at 60 years old. And you're brand new, driving the guy that's been through from birth, but he's only 40. But you, 60-year-old, are driving him, 40-year-old, to be more ambitious about Hashem. Why? Because you're brand new. You just met God for the first time three weeks ago. He thinks he knows him for 40 years. He's not excited about Mincha, Arvit, shiur Torah. He's like, oh, I'm tired, I'm going to watch some TV and go to sleep. You are like, Hashem, Hashem is here. Hashem is showing up. Hashem is showing up. Wake up, wake up. Well, wake up, I'm still sleeping at 6.30 in the morning. Leave me alone. He's bored. He's already religious 40 years. You, 60-year-old, 50-year-old, 80-year-old, whatever you are, point is, you wake him up. Why? You're the young generation. You have to surround yourself with a few Baalit chuba. You have to surround yourself by a few interns. You have to surround yourself with a few new people. To keep yourself young. How do you do it? Help them. Give them a reason to be around you. Take a few of these new guys. You know what, guys? You're you're all new? Five, six, seven? Oh, you know what? I'm going to teach you a little Torah. Half hour every morning after tefillah, I'm going to teach you guys. Really? Wow, you're going to teach us? You? Psst. They look at you like Moshe Rabbeinu. And ends up that you end up being a better version of yourself. Why? Because of Even the sages in the Gemara said, I learned from my rabbi, but I even learned more from my Chavuta. But the most I learned from were my students. I learned from my students. Rabbi Ishmael says, surround yourself with students. Be nice to them. Be pleasant to them. The young generation, not just by age, by experience, they're going to keep you young. Last but not least, He says, receive every person cheerfully. In the early Mishnah, chapter 1, Mishnah 15, Shammai, you know, Shammai in Bet-Shammai Bet-Hilel, Shammai, the the original Shammai, said that uh, something similar, he said that you should Receive all people in a cheerful state of mind. But here, Rabbi Ishmael says you should receive them with happiness. So Hazal explains that this is the next level. You should be cheerful to do anything that you're doing. If you're doing it for the sake of Hashem. You're doing Mitzvot, you've yielded yourself to the superior, to the ultimate power, to the creator, that's already good. You've surrounded yourself by a few Baaletshuvah, that's already good. You should be already happy that you're alive. Rabbi Yishma says, being content and cheerful about is not enough. Do it with simcha. Do it with full kavanah. Next level. Now this morning looking at my daughter and I was learning some Musa from her. And yes, she's only two years old. She's only two years old. I was thinking about her and I said, you know what? Shlomo Melech, Shlomo HaMelech, wisest man of all time, says, go to the ant, little ant, go to the ant and learn from her, you lazy bum. And then you'll be smart. Who says this Go to the ant, you luggard, you lazy person. Go to the ant, learn from her, and then you'll be wise, you'll be smart. What is this? A parable? What's going on here? Very simple. So, Mom says You have an ant. An ant sees all its cousins, all its brothers, all its sisters all everyone, die after about six months of life. An ant only lives approximately six months. That's it. So the ant sees everyone else, cousins, brothers, sisters, everyone else that was already born before him, die at a pretty young age, six months. But still, what does he do? Every day he goes to work as if nothing happened. And as a matter of fact, on his first day of life, he collects enough food to survive him six months. So just on his first day, he has enough for the rest of his life. But he still continues to go to work every single day. He continues to try. He continues to collect. He collects six months of food every day. But he's only going to live six months. But he continues to perform with vigor and excitement. Maybe I'm going to be the ant. Beats the system. Maybe I'm going to live longer than six months. Shlomo Amelech says, learn from the end and you'll be wise. What can you learn from the end? Learn that number one, you never know how long you're going to live. Two, two, whatever you do, put your full covenant in. It doesn't matter how long it's gonna be if you have a long to live, you don't have long to live, you're this, you're that, it doesn't make a difference. You have a mitzvah, do it. So I was looking at my daughter. And she's two years old. And she doesn't know all of our words yet. She knows all the colors, Bo Hashem, she knows purple, she knows red, she knows blue, she knows the numbers, she knows the ABCs, the whole alphabet, she knows a little bit of Hebrew also. Oh Hashem, she's very smart. But she also knows a few other things, and she knows that before Shabbat is over, you have to do avdalah. So she goes to her seat and she waits for the candle to go on. And every time I say a bracha, she says "Amen." There's not many words, but she knows "Amen." And then when the candle comes, you have to do the part of avdalah where you look at your fingernails because it's a reminder of Adam Arishon. The reason why you look at your fingernails next to the candle is because the skin of Adam HaRishon was shiny like our nails after they went to the manicure. And it's a reminder of what we lost. So she knows that when the candle section comes, she goes like this, the candle. She puts her hand like this. Two-year-old. Excited about the mitzvah, go like this. Now, what was I thinking about this morning? Every time Sarah... What's her name, Sarah? Who learns everything from my mom. I just... I'm there too, for entertainment purposes. She's amazing. I just enjoy the ride. So she... Every time she eats, she knows that before you eat, you have to make a blessing. At two years old, she knows before you eat... Abba and Ima make a blessing. So she doesn't know all the blessing words yet. She says, Amen, <inaudible> eats. Difference is that every bite she makes a blessing. It's not just one time. She takes something, she says a few right words, a few mumbles, Amen, <inaudible> Amen. And everybody has to say Amen, and she drinks. And she puts it down, looks around, Okay. Next bite, amen, amen. Everybody says amen, amen. Amen, you drink it. Every single bite, another blessing. It's the cutest thing in the world. It's a million bucks, you think this is the greatest thing? It was worth to come to the world just to watch this once. And you see this two-year-old, two-year-old, two-year-old little girl, making the blessing, and she says amen to herself, but she also waits for me and my wife to say amen. And she gets excited when we're all saying Amen. And then she wants to do it again. But I was thinking this morning. The Chazal says that the horrible, horrific, worst decrees from Shemaim can be cancelled due to the prayers of the children who learn Torah. And I thought to myself, what's so special about the children that learn Torah and do mitzvot? What? I don't know more Torah than them. He's six years old. Okay, maybe he knows a little more. Than four years old. I know more than a four-year-old. What is this Torah? is better than mine. What's so What's so special about his prayer? What's so special about his Torah? Why is... I'm praying to Hashem. I'm crying hysterical. This. Hashem, cancel bad decree. No. Little Sarah. Amen. Amen. Decree canceled. Why? I'm thinking about it. Driving me crazy. Why? What's so special? What is so special about Sarah's prayer? What is so special about Tino, tino shel Ben Rabban? What? Thinking about Sarah this morning, and I said, Sarah only has one mitzvah she knows. Whatever mitzvah is in front of her, that's the mitzvah she knows. She knows she has to make a blessing before she eats. One blessing before she eats. She takes a bite. Before she take the bite, she has to make the blessing. And at the end of the blessing, she has to say, "Amen, amen." Other people have to say, "Amen, amen." And she goes through the whole thing. And she has full passion and excitement for this one mitzvah that she knows. She puts her entire self into this one mitzvah. Our whole kavanah, our whole little two-year-old body goes into this one mitzvah. Can we say the same about our mitzvah? Any of our mitzvah. That all of us went into this one mitzvah or any mitzvah you made today. Name one mitzvah we did today that we had as much kavana at Sarah the two-year-old baby. That's what I said. That's why her prayer cancels big decrease. That's why the little babies when they pray and their parents send them to the right school, to the right teaching, to the right Torah, you put their head on the right direction. That's why their prayer is the one that's going to bring Mashiach. Because when they finally pray, they have kavanah. They have kavanah. We have all the mitzvot. Alvay, we have kavanah for one of them. Rabbi Ishmael tells us it all starts with these three simple things. First, know you have to yield to the Creator. Two, surround yourself by Tinnakot Ben Rabban. Surround yourself by Baalei Chuva, Surround yourself by converts brand new to the religion, excited about Hashem. And when you have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, whether it be Tzedakah, learning Torah, Shachrit, Mincha, Arvit, Remember, Sarah has full kavanah when she prays. You should at the very least have some simcha. Any questions? Baruch le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Amen. Gracious.